Thank you, David. It's a great privilege to be here. It's an honor to bring God's word in any t situation, and it's a real pleasure to be back uh, as from a year ago when David had a Sunday off. I was growing up not far from Milton Keynes, Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire, came up to Glasgow to study vet medicine, uh, went to the Christian Union because I'd been a crusader. Uh, the boys' Bible class and the crusader leaders turned up at my flat door and said, are you coming to crusaders? I started going to the Christian Union at the university and God was gracious to me and on the 2nd of February 1964, he called me through a sermon in the old tent hall in Glasgow, a um, not a relic, but a, a continuation of the work done by D.L. Moody in the 1890s. It's uh, down now, but lovely living Christianity. And that Sunday, 2nd of February, 64, God called me to surrender my life to him. And um, later, after working briefly as a vet, I was uh, called to the full-time Christian ministry. And here I am grateful to have Jesus as a savior. You're opening your lives, yes please, uh, Andrew, thank you. You're opening our lives to the message of Deuteronomy and we've reached this famous passage which I imagine just about everybody here will know is called by the Jewish folk, especially devout Jewish people, the Shema. That word is simply their language, Hebrew, for the word here and uh, the famous passage which a devout Jew will say twice a day along with a couple of other passages is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and uh, it starts with these words Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one or it's just four words um, that last bit um, Yahweh or Lord or Jehovah whatever way it's it's his name rather than just uh, what he is but Yahweh our God, Yahweh one, or possibly Jehovah our God, Jehovah alone. And you put the is where you want to, so you can truly say this is represented by the words, the Lord, our God, the Lord is a unity. Or you can say, the Lord, our God, is our Lord alone. No other God do we have. Now the situation, let's move on to the, uh, the map. The situation, David will have told you, but just to remind you, top left of the screen there, they've just been uh, rescued, fairly recently rescued from slavery in Egypt. God's done a mighty act, brought them out across the Reed Sea down to Mount Sinai. So they are a rescued, if you like, a ransomed, a redeemed people. In a sense, he's paid a price for them. He's really had to go to an effort to make them his people who were formerly slaves. Wonderful picture of what Jesus does for us, of course, in our slavery, our addiction to self-centeredness, our slavery to guilt. We're under its power, under its grip, and that's why the cross uh, is so important. It breaks the domination and the dominion of self-centeredness and guilt in our lives. So it's a kind of picture of the Christian life besides being a true historical fact. So he has rescued us and if you like let's go back to 1400 BC he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and then at Mount Sinai he 
constituted them his own people. That is to say, there's a deal between us. I am entering into a covenant with you almost, whether they wanted it or not. I am covenanting to be your God. I'm your Savior. And here's the relationship between us. They declined for 40 days to go into the Holy Land. They said, oh dear, the difficulties are too great. The enemies are too large. The cities are too fortified. And so God said, well, if you really don't want all that I've promised you in my gracious purposes, I won't force them on you. For the 40 days that this generation has declined my gracious call forwards, there will be 40 years of wandering around the Sinai Desert until this generation, all but Joshua and uh, Caleb and their families, until this generation have died out, and it'll be the next generation whom I will call into all the good things that I've got in the promised land, in what I've got purposed as good in your lives. And so at the point where Deuteronomy is taking place, it's just north of the Dead Sea there, immediately east of it. You can see across to the city of Jericho where quite soon, soon as Moses died, they crossed the Jordan River and fit the Battle of Jericho. And you can imagine here is a people who for 40 years have been in a kind of spiritual wilderness and God is saying to them through the prophet, the uh, leader Moses, he says, right now, remind you of what's happened. This is the way life is going to be lived in the Holy Land. I've got a design for healthy living of a community. So yes, please, Andrew. Interestingly, it almost exactly takes the same form as typical treaties between nations in that part of the world in that period. And you'll see the reason for my finding this exciting in a minute. The, there were the people called the Hittites in what we call South and Central Turkey nowadays, and they conquered quite a bit of the Middle East at this time, just a bit earlier than this. One of the people actually was Egypt, and uh, they entered into a kind of treaty relationship, and they all, uh, all the ones that have been found, go through this fourfold step. Here's the situation we've conquered the northern part of Egypt. And, uh, but I've decided since I'm a Hittite king, I'm a very good guy, aren't I? Second bullet point. So we make a covenant with you. Here's the deal. It's terms. An example of the Hittite-Egyptian treaty is if we, the Hittites, get attacked by Assyria or Syria or Babylonia or anybody, the Egyptians will send so many soldiers. So there's an ag agreement about what's going to happen between these two people who've entered into a formal agreement. Please sign here. Now, move on. Yes, please, Andrew. In the case of Deuteronomy, that's almost exactly the shape of it with an exciting addition. 
There's the historical introduction, which I'm sure David has led you through in previous weeks. Uh, for the first four chapters, he's saying, remember you had to go round the desert for 40 years because you didn't trust me, and I want you to learn to trust me, and we're on the very verge of the Holy Land. And then, if you've got a Bible with you, you might be interested in looking at the little statement, I'm a gracious king, in chapter 5 and verse 6, I am Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There is, I'm the gracious king. And then he goes on to the core covenant. We entered into a covenant with you. Um, and uh, it says in chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, that is at Mount Sinai. I'm the Lord your God, the gracious king, and then the core deal. You have no other gods before me. Don't make yourself uh, graven images and so on. And then in chapters 12 to 26, there is the detail in which the Jewish life was supposed to be lived out once they were in the Holy Land. And then chapter 30, second half of it, be actually be quite interesting if you got home just before lunch and uh, you're having your peanuts and a cup of orange juice, say, let's just look at the second half of chapter 30, and uh, it goes something like this. It's not difficult to sign up to trusting God. You just say, yes, please, I want you. It's as close as believing and saying it. So you'll see there's a sort of a demand, an opportunity to choose between life and death. But here's the bit which Deuteronomy adds, which I have the privilege of unleashing for a few minutes now. It didn't happen in the ordinary secular treaties between the Hittites and the Egyptians or other treaty arrangements of the time. God added this bit, chapters 6 to 12, the whole spirit of the bond between me, your Savior, and you, my people, is this. Look at it at chapter 7, verse 7, for example. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. In fact, you were quite a small nation. It was because the Lord loved you, just like that. You and I can say the same, can't we? It certainly wasn't because I was upright enough for God to say, thanks a lot, there's a guy who's got to get to heaven. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before the glory of God. It's not because we were splendid or clever or rich or anything. God just set his affection on us because, astonishingly, miraculously, kindly, he set his affection on us just like that. Cool, isn't it marvelous? Say yes. Thank you. It's just fabulous. And so, what's the appropriate response? Why? Chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And here at last we get to the passage David gave me for today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know, in a slightly pathetic way, a little thing a bit like this happened to me when I was 11 years old and I was learning, as we all do, different subjects at school and for some reason the history teacher had an absolute down on me. I, 
Honestly, not quite sure why, but anyway. And so I used to sit there fairly kind of um, mute in his lessons, and occasionally if he would direct things to me, I would smile and try and understand. Well, it turned out I really wasn't listening one time, and I discovered he was telling me off, and I smirked. So he had a, he had a uh, stutter. So suddenly I had the words shouted at me across the classroom, wait, get out! And uh, I vanished, very upset indeed. I'm a sensitive little boy, can't you tell? And uh, I vanished to the cloakroom, and uh, felt so ashamed of myself, didn't want to be seen, so I hid between the coats for the whole of history, only I'd forgotten after history came French. So I seemed to be standing there an awfully long time, hiding between the raincoats, and uh, then came the bell for the milk break, and I thought, whoops, I've missed Mr. Gosen's French class. So next time we had French, I went up very trembling, and I think he could see I was frightened, I was feeling guilty, I was uh, uh, ashamed of myself. And I can remember it to this day, he just looked at me so kindly, and he, I, I said, sorry, I wasn't at French last time, and he said, that's all right, go to your seat. And you know, just the sheer kindness of that melted my heart. Now, I was lousy at French, I came third that year, <laughs> because... He, your heart expands when somebody's really kind to you, doesn't it? And I'll never forget, he was called M.G. Gosen, so we called him Maggie. Maggie Gosen, I'll never forget. Kindness evokes grateful love. And I couldn't work hard enough in French for the whole of the rest of that year. Now, that's what kind of thing is being said here, isn't it? I'm the Lord your God who rescued from slavery, and I just love you. Not because you deserve it, not because you're nice enough, not all of you because you're good-looking enough, nothing rude, uh, uh, just because I love you. And there are two key features of the word love in Holy Scripture. Of course, it means a whole lot, but God's love for us consists in essence of two kinds of approach. Uh, they are gracious purpose, what the textbooks call benevolentia, benevolence, gracious purpose. And the second one, again in the textbooks, it's called amicitia, from which we get amicable, sheer friendship. God's love for you has these two core features. He purposes your well-being. And, almost even better, he likes you. Now, to some of us, that is a miracle. I don't like myself three quarters of the time, as my poor wife Liz will tell you. I keep groaning. She says, what's that? And I say, that was something silly I said when I was 16. Can't stand Peter White quite a lot of the God's quite different. He's accepted this sinner just because he's decided out of his affection, out of his gracious purpose, out of his goodwill, and because he, can you believe it? Because he enjoys our friendship, he's made us his own.
And that bond, I covenant to be your God, King, Savior, personal friend. I am committed to that. Comes in these four words. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I think it's difficult for us in the 20th century West, 21st century West, to have a feel for what a revolution that statement is. And I'm going to read from a Jewish lady, actually, who later married uh, C.S. Lewis, Joy Davidman. And she's, she was a historian, and she put it rather like this. Uh, here's just a paragraph. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Everyone knew the universe was a wild, chaotic thing, a jungle of warring powers, wind against water, sun against moon, male against female, life against death. There was the God of spring planting and another God of the harvest, the spirit who puts fish into fishermen's nets and a being who specialized in the care of women and childbirth. And at best there was an uneasy truce between all these deities. And then, from an insignificant tribe of desert wanderers, you get this revolutionary statement, the Lord our God is one Lord. It was the greatest discovery in ever, ever made. The belief in one God slew a host of horrors, malign storm demons, evil jinn of sickness, blighters of the harvest, Belief in God destroyed the fetishes, the totems, the beast-headed bullies of old time. The old gods fought among themselves, loved and hated without reason, demanded unspeakable bribes and meaningless flatteries. While they were worshipped, a moral law was impossible for what pleased one god would offend another. If your wife ran away from you, it wasn't because you beat her. It was because you'd forgotten the monthly sacrifice to Ishtar. Just offer a double, double sacrifice and you get two new wives, prettier than the old. <laughs> then came the knowledge of God. An almost unimaginable person. A single being, creator of heaven and earth, not to be bribed with golden images or burning your children alive, loving only righteousness, a being who demanded your whole heart. You know, I read those paragraphs in preparation for the time at Aviemore. You know what I said? Thank you, God. Aren't we fortunate? The whole of Western civilization is built on the realization we live in a universe. There are laws of nature. The whole thing is coherent. It's the basis of modern civilization. When we talk of justice, we aren't talking about warring deities demanding different things in ways you can... We know there's a difference between right and wrong. It's been written into every cell in the human body. And thank you, God, you've disclosed that coherence, that unity to us. So anytime you get laughed at by the great comedians, you know, uh, despise God this and laugh at Christians the other, the only reason they have coherent brains is because there is one God who has invested rationality into the way we think. 
They have no idea how lucky they are compared with plenty of people in other parts. I have a friend who visits uh, a particular country in Africa where there is just a growing to love Jesus from the many deities. One of the people who started coming to church is the wife of the local witch doctor. And she started coming to church because she saw something of the power of Jesus from the missionaries, only she brought along one or two of the... Um, the reduced size, can't well, you, you soak a human skull in something so as to put it there in your mantelpiece and it wards off evil spirits. And she turned up to church and on top of a shelf where there was a cross, just beside those, she put a couple of uh, sunken human heads. And you see, she's still in this grip of, who have I got to please? Is it chaotic? And we can say to anybody in the world, however much cleverer than us, the Lord our God is one God. That's why you can do maths. That's the foundation of all modern science. The Lord our God is one Lord. But there's another way of saying it, and it's equally valid, and inside my own heart, I think, as do some of the best modern commentaries, it's actually the, the central way of understanding these four words. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Remember in Ephesus when uh, somebody got uh, into deep trouble for trying, this is Acts chapter 17 I think, uh, he was trying to exorcise people the way the Christians did. Was his name Sceva? can't remember. And uh, he got all discomforted, you know, and uh, the magicians and the spiritists of the time realized, oh wow, Jesus really is Mr. Big. And they all brought their scrolls and they burnt them in the public square. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Now, you have a difficulty with that, and so do I quite often. I'll tell you one example. One of my office bearers in, in the Church of Scotland, it's elders, probably you have deacons here, I would guess, but it's the same a group of people who oversee uh, the way the work is going. One of my elders came to me, he said, Peter, this is in a previous church many years ago, um, Peter, can you help me conquer something? I'm an absolute slave to the glossy magazines and all they do. He had a lovely brand new car. He had all the latest photographic equipment. He uh, was uh, also keen on joinery. He actually gave me a rather uh, inadequate drill stand because he was buying a lovely, gorgeous new one. His wife didn't even have a washing machine. And we had to work out the rivals to God in modern society. For some, as we know, it's fame. For some, it's power over people. For some, it's wealth. For some, it's... Uh, if you can possibly get there, a 60-foot yacht and three servants to run it. It can be all sorts. It can be giving in to the boss at work and saying, okay, I'll lie on this occasion because I'll lose my job otherwise. God has many arrivals for some young men, as I know from 
Um, I studied during uh, time as a college principal and we talked about these things. For some young men, it's pornography at two in the morning. There are many rivals to God. And the thing that the Shema says to us is not only you can relax in this universe, it belongs to your Savior. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's good. But also... The Lord is my God, the Lord alone. And with that elder, we had to work out ways of burning the glossy magazines. Instant rejection, constant resistance. You just don't go and buy it. You decide your wife is going to get a washing machine. You buy a second-hand car. You slaughter the Rivals to God. That's the implication of the Lord our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. And then we say, how do we fight this fight? Because, Lord, I don't always choose it. And the answer, of course, is in the two statements of love we've just read. Maggie Gosen evoked grateful diligence just by his grace towards a failure. God evokes, if we let this sink in well enough, thankful I will live for you because he has wiped away your guilt, made you his own, rescued you from heaven, uh, from hell, promised you heaven, given you the spirit to strengthen you? How come Jesus just virtue went out of him? Liz and I are reading Luke at the moment and yesterday's reading was uh, virtue went out of him and they were all healed as they came flocking from Tyre and Sidon, from round about Judea, up from Jerusalem, and they were all, virtue flowed from him. And he was asked that, what's the most important thing? And he said, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 5. And he just loved the Lord his God. God was sheer grace and he delighted in him. How come Abraham moves all the way from Haran down to the south and expects at a hundred years old become a dad? You shall love the Lord. Gosh, what a friend I've got in the Almighty. He likes me. Man, I want to live for him. That is what the old theologians call the expulsive power of a new affection. Beloved, if you are, if you are too affected by Ortner's pressure, kick it out. It's lovely. If you are oppressed by guilt from the past, kick it out. What's the cross been for? If you are worried he's got a downer on you because you're so evil in your thought life, 
rubbish. He's accepted that you, that you are. He's redeemed you and he loves you and you are in friendship together. Help me live my yes to you and my no to dishonesty at work today. My yes to you and my no to covetousness from the glossy magazines. My yes to you and my no to 2 a.m. unworthy television watching. Whatever your rival to God is, God is gloriously better, wonderfully lovable. That is the power to enjoying all that is represented in our lives by Leviticus 12 to 20, Deuteronomy 12 to 26. The kind of way to be a good neighbor, the kind of way to make sure that you live a life that refuses to do wrong, that lives according to justice, that stands up for the weak, that is quietly kind to the impoverished. It all flows from one thing. It's the Magigosan reality. The Almighty loves you to bits. Isn't he worth loving back? Say yes. Amen.